This is where Texas politics gets interesting. Here again are two guys named Jason, some great guests, and cold Texas beer for another smart conversation on Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas. Hey guys, uh, welcome back to Yolitics here. Um, I'm not in the attic, not in a garage either. I'm actually in an audio booth, which we never use for this. And Wheeler is, of course, at Casa de Wheeler. You sound amazing, though, in that audio booth. I mean, I, how does I, it sound? I, I'm, I'm glad we're on Zoom. For a second there, I thought, you know, is Barry White back? Is he, you know, tonight? Boy, this is amazing. So, um, I, you know, I, I have to work today, so uh, I don't have a beer in hand because I'm, I'm filling in for you on one of your many duties. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, you're, you're sitting at the house, and uh, you have a cold brew. What do you have, man? Yeah, I, I've burned a day off today, uh, and that's why you're having to fill in for me. So uh, the question is, why am I recording then? Why are we on a podcast together? It, it's like a day off is never really a day off. Uh, I don't know if, if our listeners and viewers are experiencing this, but do you just get the sense that work never really ends? That, you know, you take your job home with you, you try to leave it outside, and somehow it gets in through a window or a door or a crack somewhere, and you're never quite done. We're, we're less than 30 days into the new year, man. Jeez. We're, and we're here I am already. In. <laughs> working here on your day off. Melting down. Uh, okay, so this is going to make it better. Uh, I'm having a shiner today, uh, but it's a special shiner. It is an orale. Uh, it is a oh, Mexican-style cerveza, and I figured this was fitting because uh, this kind of uh, you know talks about a region uh, that is a big part of this uh, podcast today because so many eyes have been on what is happening at the Texas-Mexico border. Uh, I mean, it, it's like every day the plot thickens, Jason. And, and could you—I never thought we'd be in, in this situation where we have— the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, who's the former attorney general, I believe he he was a judge before that. Yeah. He, Supreme he Court is Justice. Yeah, a Supreme Court Justice and a, and a lower court judge before that. And here he is defying the United States Supreme Court, a five to four ruling from the Supreme Court for Texas State Guard to leave and to leave Shelby Park and Eagle Pass and open that back up to Border Patrol. This is right along the, the Rio Grande, right in Eagle Pass, downtown Eagle Pass. And the, uh, you know, the, the state has really set up camp there uh, a few weeks back. And there are allegations that the state guard and the state of Texas would not allow Border Patrol access to that. Of course, the argument is, uh, you know, the argument by Governor Abbott is, is that, listen, President Biden sent people down here to slow the flow of immigration. And then the argument from the other side is, hey, maybe so, but at the end of the day, immigration law is a federal matter. It's not a state matter. Right. Uh, and so this is going back and forth. And again, this is extraordinary because not only is this a governor of Texas uh, who's, you know, still fighting back, even though this ruling has come down. Uh, but uh, again, he is also a former Supreme Court justice here in the state of Texas. So, you know, you've got somebody who, you know, this is in their blood. They used to, you know, be on a high court. Uh, and he's looking at the high court of the U.S. and just saying, 
Okay, sure. Uh, and, and so, you know, Texas has continued uh, putting out this razor wire. Uh, the court didn't say that they couldn't do it, and they couldn't. They didn't say it all has to come down. They said that the feds could get in there and take it down if they needed to. Uh, and so this is just sort of this standoff that's been going on. Governor Abbott has gotten quite a bit of support, especially from the right on this. And I mm-hmm. think probably the, the, the biggest example of that, uh, I mean, this is an extraordinary tweet that we're, or X that was sent out, I guess, uh, by the press office of Representative uh, Chip Roy of Texas, a, a, a Republican. Uh, and, and here's what he said in this. He said, it's like if someone's breaking into your house and the court says, oh, sorry, you can't defend yourself. What do you tell the court? You tell the court to go to hell. You defend yourself and then figure it out later. I mean, this is an elected representative here in Texas, you know, essentially saying, go to hell, Supreme Court. We're going to do what we want. Keep in mind, this is the party of law and order saying this that that's what makes this all, all you know such a big deal but speaking of law and order uh this is just one case before the u.s supreme court right now right. you know you thought last term and and term before last were big deals at the supreme court you know what six seven years ago at the obergefell decision which uh, allowed gay marriage in the united states uh, a term or two ago they um they, they told states that states could now be in charge of whether to allow abortions or not. That's nothing compared to what's going on right now with the Supreme Court. And that's what our, our first guest is talking about. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, it's an interesting thing because several of these cases are Texas related or Texas adjacent cases. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we'll see. Do 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 rulings come in uh, that, you know, Republicans in this state feel a lot better about than this razor wire one where they're not telling the court to go to hell and instead embracing it? Are you able to be selective like that with Supreme Court decisions? And, and where does that put us if, if you are? Uh, it, it's really a fascinating topic, and there is no one better than uh, UT law professor Steve Vladek uh, to talk to us about all of these things. Some of these things you may not have even had on your bingo card as, right. as something to watch for, uh, but he's trying to keep up with all of these different huge cases before the high court uh, in this term, uh, and all of these you know, impact all of our lives in some way or another, uh, and it's like herding cats uh, to keep up with all of these. A lot is at stake, and the Supreme Court term ends in uh, July, August, something like that, and they take a month or so off. So we're going to have a lot of things coming down here this summer, uh, right in the middle of what's going to be a hotly contested election year. But Steve Vladek, always a great guest for us. He always takes our call. So we gave him another shout when we saw what was happening there in D.C. Hey, y'all. This is where Texas politics gets interesting for another smart conversation on Eolitics. So, Steve, thanks so much for being with us once again. Uh, it feels like we should be doing like monthly check-ins with you right now uh, regarding the Supreme Court. This has been the busiest term, but I mean, I guess I should ask you that. It just seems that way to me as a layperson. So, I mean, one of the really weird things about the current Supreme Court term is it feels like it is insanely busy and insanely intense. And the court is still going to end up handing down fewer decisions than, you know, was the norm as recently as five years ago. I mean, there's there's been this remarkable shift in the court's docket where just a higher percentage of what the court is doing is big headline generating stuff that, you know, folks who don't necessarily follow the court every day 
are interested in or paying attention to, whereas the total amount of work the courts do has gone way down. <laughs> and so there's a weird contrast there that that's sort of hard to square. The, the Supreme Court has 56 cases, I believe, this term right now. But but it seems like like you mentioned, every every term, every year, the, the, the headlines get bigger from the Supreme Court. How big is it going to be this year? Just just generally speaking, we'll dive into the specifics. Though, but we're talking about presidential immunity, the yeah. border issues. There, there's all kinds of big, you know, landmark cases here, potentially. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it'll depend on how some of these come out, Jason, obviously. But I think it's, you know, it's. This is a remarkable thing to say, given the last couple of terms, but I think this is probably the biggest term of our lifetimes. Um, you know, I, I, I think, I mean, it's it's always hard to have this conversation about what, what it means to be the biggest. But if we're talking about just sort of the, the concentration of really important, really significant, you know, democracy-affecting rulings that are not just about high-profile social issues, but that are actually about potentially restructuring government um, and who can run for president. Um, you know, it's it's really hard when you put it all on paper to think of any term that had this many cases with those kinds of stakes. And how much mm. busier and, and, and could this get if, you know, and this is a huge hypothetical, but we've seen it happen before, yeah. if the election had to be thrown to this court like we saw in 2000 with Bush and Gore, can you imagine that? I mean, that's the other thing, like, you know, the, the term technically runs from October to October. Um, and so, you know, this is all just what's in front of the court at this point, guys, as we sit here in January. Um, who knows, right, what's going to come up in the primary election cycles that are already underway um, in the general election cycle, you know, early next term, if there's actually disputes after the November election, and we have a scenario where the court is back in a situation like in 2000 with Bush versus Gore. And I think, you know, there's a there's a tendency on the justices part whenever they talk about this publicly, which is not that often um, to sort of throw up their hands and say, well, what are we supposed to do? Like, you know, the, the cases just happen to come to us and we're just doing our job. And I think that's a bit um, that takes them off the hook a bit. Like, you know, this is this is how this court has set things up. Um, and this is a product of a court that has shown over and over again a willingness to take any any and every major question um, at any and every point of litigation so that it's not just the confluence of big questions. It's that the court is, you know, has has an open for business sign um, out on First Street that I think a lot of folks are taking advantage of. Well, what does that tell you? Because a lot of times the, the court in the past would let lower court rulings stand. So what does it tell you now that they're, they're taking all kinds of cases at any point during litigation? Um. It says that this is a court that's not afraid of its shadow, Jason, right? I think it, it, it says that this is a court that is very confident um, that it is better situated to resolve these disputes than anyone else, whether it's lower court judges who might actually have more expertise on some of the underlying questions, whether it's, you know, democratically elected officials. Um, and, you know, I think that the sort of the, the power grab that, I mean, that we've talked about before, right, is is decades in coming um, and is not ideological. It just feels ideological right now because at this moment, right, the court is divided six to three. And so with the power grab that I think would have happened anyway, the results that most of us see are results that tend to align, right, with the ideological preferences of a majority of the court.
Historically speaking, uh, you know, the rest of us don't study these things like you do, Steve. Historically speaking, how You're better unusual off for it. is <laughs> how unusual is this court, though, in your estimation? And and we've, is yeah. this sort of setting the stage for what's to come? I mean, I think we've never seen anything like it. Um, and, and what I mean by that is not not that there are six conservatives. We've seen that before. Not that they are you know willing to reconsider past precedents. We've seen that before. Right, guys. To me, what's what's unique is the just sort of the the constancy of it. Um, right, that every week the court has some other new big question before it. I mean, you know, just as, as we're recording this, right, the court has just handed down a ruling in the razor wire dispute here in Texas that you know was a really really big deal um, and was probably nowhere on the top like thirty you know, lists anyone had of important things the Supreme Court was going to or is going to do this term. So I, I think it's it's not that any one of these cases um, is 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 a case the likes of which we never would have seen before. It's that they all taken together are. Um, and we just we haven't seen this kind of volume of, you know, massive, you know, con law altering cases um, all before the court at the same time. Well, let's get into some of these cases. You mentioned the one about the concertina wire down on the Rio Grande uh, Eagle Pass area. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled five to four in that case. It, you tweeted something about this that, that only you would know or, or, <laughs> you know, watchers of the court would know, but I didn't realize. You said this is the ninth time the court has sided with the Biden administration across 14 emergency applications. Here, here's what struck me on this one. It was a five to four ruling, and I thought, just from a, a lay perspective, that, that the law was pretty clear that, that, you know, immigration, border, you know, all, all that lies with the federal government, not the state government. What, what was the dissent? We don't know. I mean, you know, the, the back to my soapbox about the Supreme Court handing down unsigned, unexplained decisions. You know, one of the one of the frustrating things about the, the ruling in the razor wire case is that neither the majority nor the dissent bothered to tell us why they were voting the way they did. Um, but, you know, Jason, I mean, I think that's of a piece, right, with this broader phenomenon of the court not feeling like it owes anyone anything, right? It doesn't feel like it owes us an explanation when it hands down a ruling that obviously has immediate and controversial real world political impact, I mean, especially here in Texas. So, you know, I, I just I think part of the court, you know, it's not reasonable to expect the court to explain everything that it does. But it's also not reasonable for the justices to think that they don't have to explain anything that they do, right? And and the question is, are they drawing the right balance? Uh, and I think there are pretty good arguments right now that the answer is no. Um, you know, there are probably reasons why that 5-4 ruling didn't have opinions on either side, but that's not necessarily a good thing. Jason, if you think about it from the perspective of, you know, Texas officials, um, who are trying to figure out what they can and can't do going forward. Federal officials who are trying to figure out what they can and can't do going forward. You know, we don't know the answer to that question because the court hasn't said anything. I was going to say in this particular case, that might have been really clarifying to have explained, you know, what we're thinking in this decision, because there are several cases just from Texas that are pending or could be pending before the court related to the border right now. Do you think that part of it was sort of a fig leaf to cover up a little bit just in case in one of these related cases, I vote a different way and it doesn't seem to make sense that I voted one way on one and one way on the other? I mean, maybe, but that's uh, to say, you know, to describe it is to indict it, um, right? I mean, that's, you know, that that should not be how the justices are voting. 
um, if there's a consistent legal theory supporting your position, you ought to follow it. And that's mm -hmm. part of the problem when the court doesn't explain itself. But you know, guys, stepping back for a bit, I mean, I think this broader question of immigration federalism, right, and of how far states, Texas first and foremost, can go to, you know, not just assist federal law enforcement authorities, no one ever has doubted that states can do that, but to almost supplant them um, and to sort of take it upon themselves to do immigration enforcement. You know, the Supreme Court hasn't really weighed in on that question since 2012. Um, in a case out of Arizona. And I think, you know, there are a lot of folks in Texas, in the governor's office, in the attorney general's office, who are hoping, thinking, you know, uh, uh, pushing um, to see if the Supreme Court would still follow that ruling in a case called Arizona versus the United States. This is a different court. And as you say, I mean, the, the razor wire case is a flashpoint for that. Um, a dispute over Texas putting these movable barriers in the Rio Grande is a flashpoint for that. Uh, the forthcoming litigation over SB4, which is you know Texas's new law that puts a lot of additional uh, uh, restrictions on you know folks who are in the the, the state but out of status, um, you know that's a flashpoint too. And so, given that you have this confluence of litigation, and guys, not just litigation, an on the ground physical confrontation between yeah. Texas and federal officials in Eagle Pass, you know the court's refusal to say anything. I think is really extraordinary and and drives home the broader point that like this is a court that is in the middle of everything, but in ways that are not necessarily having the settling effect, right? That 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 are maybe in some respects only precipitating and provoking further litigation as opposed to resolving these questions and taking them off the table. This is a five to four decision on the razor wire. Um, I'm just curious, does this give us any guidepost about? How the court might decide SB four, Senate Bill four, that that is essentially the Texas's show me your papers law. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I Jason, I'm, I'm hard pressed to see how, um, because the the razor wire case is in a very different posture. The razor wire case was a suit brought by Texas against the federal government, as opposed to SB four, which is the federal government suing Texas. Sure. Um, there are reasons why you could be opposed to the razor wire suit on procedural grounds about the federal government's sovereign immunity that would not attach to the SB4 case. The, the only justice who I'm really surprised by um, is Justice Kavanaugh, um, who was one of the four dissenters. And, and I do wonder if that, Jason, might be a bit of a signal that he's you know not where Justice Kennedy was on questions of immigration federalism. But again, we don't know. And, and, you know, part of what's, I think, especially exasperating about trying to cover the court right now and disseminate to everyone what the court is doing is, you know, I can't tell you what the answer to your question is because they provided us with no guidance. You know, we'll, we'll find out when we find out. And hmm. in the interim, what that does is it just facilitates more chaos and confusion um, along the Texas border. And, you know, if, if we step back from this case, right, in sort of lots of other cases that are out there with major stakes. I mean, like the Mifepristone case, right? Another another one where the court stepped in at the emergency application stage, but didn't say anything about why it was stepping in. Mm -hmm. 
I was just going to ask you, uh, I was just going to shift over to abortion because you, you said something interesting about uh, one of the border rulings, and that is they're, they're willing, it seems, to, the, the court is willing to go places where it seems like it invites more litigation. Uh, we saw this, you know, landmark uh, ruling a couple of years ago in Dobbs uh, where Roe versus Wade was overturned, and a lot of people predicted at that time that, oh, man, there's going to be a wave of litigation uh, that goes to the Supreme Court. They're going to have to keep swatting these things down. Uh, and here we are again talking about uh, mif- mifepristone this time, uh, which is uh, the, the, the pill that's widely available that may not be so widely available. That's a huge case. Going into this term, it seemed like that was going to be, you know, one of these marquee cases. And now it's not even the, it's not even the only major abortion case the court has. I mean, right, yeah, because yeah. of these other cases out of Idaho. So, you know, another good example of, of this exact phenomenon that we're talking about. You know, so the Mifepristone case, let's quickly remind folks, right? Um, last April, uh, Judge Kaczmarek and Amarillo issued this ruling that had it gone into effect would have heavily limited access to Mifepristone on a nationwide basis, not just in Texas. Um, that ruling was stayed by the Supreme Court. So, you know, the court put that on hold. It's why there's been no change to access to Mifepristone. But the court didn't tell us why. And the Fifth Circuit, after the Supreme Court had frozen Judge Kaczmarek's ruling, went ahead and affirmed most of it, Um, right? Because the Fifth Circuit could say, well, the Supreme Court didn't tell us why it was intervening, so we're not, right? And that forced the Supreme Court to step back in and take the Mifepristone case. And while that was happening, we had this other lawsuit in Idaho, where you've got a conflict between the federal government and Idaho over that state's abortion ban and how it applies to pregnant women who are uh, in some kind of emergency medical condition, right? There's a federal statute called EMTALA that requires uh, emergency rooms to treat people who walk in with emergency medical conditions and to stabilize them. And so the federal government says, you know, stabilizing treatment may in some cases include an abortion, but the Idaho abortion ban only allows abortions where it's necessary to save the life of the woman as opposed to just to stabilize an emergency medical condition. Um, And, you know, the federal government won that case in the district court and the Supreme Court stayed that injunction um, and basically put the rest of Idaho's abortion ban back into effect while also agreeing to hear the appeal this term. So another example. Yeah. Sorry. In your your experience in cases like that, when they do that, where they allow the law to stay in place while or, or, you know, to continue on while they're, you know, discussing it and, and thinking it over. In cases like that, in your experience, do they usually end up ruling to allow the law to stay? Usually, um, but not always, right? And so, you know, this is this is why uh, uh, anyone who wants to try to bet on the Supreme Court, I think, would, would be ill-advised to do so. But because there's the Idaho case, I think, and the Mifepristone case both help to drive home a broader point. In the Idaho case, when the Supreme Court issued that stay, right, it also said, we're going to take this case up now. Um, and in the process, it jumped over the federal appeals court. It did something called, it, it granted something called certiorari before judgment. Certiorari is the the normal way the court takes up appeals. It's just a fancy Latin way of saying we have discretion mm-hmm. to pick and choose which cases we hear. Certiorari before judgment is only available in cases that go through federal courts as opposed to state courts. And it allows the Supreme Court to take a case before the intermediate appeals court, the Fifth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, whatever, has ruled. And guys, it used to be reserved for exceptionally rare circumstances where there was a massively important question and a ticking clock. 
Um, and so, you know, you might have seen the court use this authority once every five or six years, maybe. Um, indeed, there's a 15-year stretch from 2004 to 2019 where they don't use it once. Wow. Right, Guys, since February of 2019, the court has used it 21 times. Um, right. And, and like the in cases with different you know, facts and different legal questions and different ideological valences. Like it's not a pure, it, it doesn't fit any one narrative about substance, right? It just shows that the court is, you know, willing to take cases whenever they want them um, and sort of shortcutting, right? What we might think of as the normal, ordinary judicial procedure in a much higher number of cases than ever before. But, but why is it doing that? Just to exercise influence or what? I mean, everyone knows their influence. And I, I thought that we talked in the past about how John Roberts, the chief justice, has really wanted to, you know, in the past, keep things lower profile, keep the court out of the spotlight. I, I think he still does. It, yeah. and, and guys, I, I think he still does. But the, the math, here, here's where we run to the math problem. It takes five, five votes to grant cert before judgment. Um, he's the sixth. Right. Okay. And so so he can't stop it. If the other five Republican appointees want a case, he can't stop them from taking it. Um, wow. And so I think I think so part of what we're seeing, right, is why does it feel like all of these cases are getting to the court so quickly um, and what the court is in the middle of everything because the court is getting them right because the court is reaching out to pull all of these things onto its docket. Um, and decide them as quickly as 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 possible. And Jason, to, to the why question, I mean, you know, I think each of the justices who are doing this might have different answers. But I think the shortest answer is, um, once again, right, because they don't see any value in waiting, right? They don't they don't they don't think they're going to learn anything from lower court judges from, you know, having a chance for the cases to work their way through the court system. And, and I think in that respect, it's arrogance at the end of the day that is behind the, the 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 shape of the docket that we're seeing. Hmm. Uh, I'm curious, does that weaken the chief justice? I mean, you know, these are members who are on his own, you know, quote unquote team you know, of the conservative uh, block there in the Supreme Court. Does it weaken him if, you know, over and over again, he doesn't really want to go a certain direction, but the other five outvote him? So it weakens him certainly behind the scenes. Um, you know, he still has a bit of control once the case gets there, right? So... You know, the chief has some informal control over when cases are argued. Um, the chief, of course, is the one who makes opinion assignments whenever he's in the majority. So he can still take some of these cases for himself, even if he might not have been in a hurry to grant them in the first place. Um, so he doesn't lose all control. But yeah, I mean, it really I suspect that, you know, 50, 75 years from now, when the justices papers from this era are available to researchers, um, we're going to see a lot of evidence that there was a lot of, um, how do I say, sort of disconnect, right, mm -hmm. between the five Republican appointees to the chief justice's right and the chief. Wow. Hey, Steve, this is an election year, of course, and presidential immunity, which we discussed early <laughs> on, is I'm coughing too here, man. I just had to go on mute for, <laughs> for a moment to do that. Um, so you're better at this. You actually muted yourself. <clears throat> right. Uh, you, yeah, we're asking you questions, man. We got you talking here. Um, but hey, presidential immunity is, is the case that a lot of people are watching on the election side. A lot of the politicos are really watching this. Uh, former President Donald Trump, of course, saying that, that he the president should have what full and total immunity. I think absolute immunity is what he was saying, not just from the civil side, which already exists, but but criminal side as well. This is is this 
issue right now is sitting in the U.S. Court of Appeals. It's a three-judge panel there. that The Supreme Court doesn't have this yet. But what do you expect that a, a, a appeals court to do? And does this end up at the Supreme Court? And, and the big question is when? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the D.C. Circuit held oral argument on January 9th. Um, and I'll just say I'm surprised as you and as we're sitting here recording, I'm surprised that it hasn't decided it yet. Um, mm -hmm. That that may change by the time folks are listening to this. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think the Court of Appeals is going to reject the immunity argument. Um, and, and there are two different ways they could do it. So the, there's a 1982 precedent that former President Trump is relying upon called Nixon versus Fitzgerald. And Fitzgerald says, if you are seeking damages against a former president, for conduct that fell within the, what the court calls the outer perimeter of his official duties, then the former president's immune, um, right? And so that's the source of the immunity. Now, the DC Circuit could say, one, that doesn't attach to criminal cases at all, right? That there's just, there's no such thing as immunity in criminal cases, or more narrowly, right? Assuming without deciding that there could be immunity in criminal cases, the conduct President Trump is being prosecuted for wasn't part of his official duties, right? That that you know, even even if civil damages were being sought, they would not be barred by Nixon versus Fitzgerald because you know President Trump, in the conduct for which he's being prosecuted, at least guys in D.C. in the January sixth case, was really acting as a candidate, right? Not as the president, um, and was acting in a way that you know was not carrying out any federal laws. It was not implementing any of his constitutional duties. Um, and so, you know, you could go either way and get to the same result. Uh, as for the Supreme, yeah, I'm sorry, Jay, go ahead. No, 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 no go curious. ahead. Well, with a with a uh, you know conservative majority, do you, do you expect uh, this argument to 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 win out with a conservative majority on the Supreme Court if it makes it there? So I think it's possible if the D.C. Circuit is unanimous. You know, it's a three judge panel, as you said, and it's an ideologically diverse three judge panel. Um, I think it's possible that if the D.C. Circuit is unanimous. Maybe the Supreme Court actually sits this one out. Um, so this is a case you know, that they actually wouldn't want to touch. Maybe I, mean, I realize that that's completely inconsistent with everything we've it been is. talking about so far. And so and so, you know, I, I wouldn't put money on this possibility. But you know, I mean, guys, the court already has this massive Trump case about um, Colorado's effort to disqualify former President Trump under Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. That's consuming a lot of oxygen. They're holding this special argument on February eighth that case. You know, I suspect that they're trying to get that decision out before the Colorado primary, which is March 5th. So I could see a universe where they say like, hey, the DC Circuit did a good job. We're fine. Um, I could also see them saying, nope, we got to do this too. And then you're going to have yet another expedited, you know, compressed argument about this massively important constitutional question. And that on Colorado the merits- case yeah. is an interesting one as well. Yeah. I mean, oh, sorry, so- no, I mean, on the merits of the immunity question, I, guys, I have a hard time believing that there are, you know, three votes, let alone five, for the proposition that a former president can't be prosecuted at all. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there was, a the, there was a hypothetical that came up during the oral argument in the D.C. Circuit where one of the judges asked the lawyer for former President Trump, is it really your position that the president could order SEAL Team 6 to go assassinate his political rival, and there's nothing, and he couldn't be prosecuted for that. And Trump's lawyer said, yeah. yes. Um, you know, if he hadn't lost yet, I think that's when he lost. Um, where, where, where are we today, man? I mean, <laughs> that, when that was said the other day, I was like, are you kidding me?
But yeah, Jason, but, but but what's remarkable is if you look at what former President Trump is saying on the campaign trail, he's saying the same things. Yeah, right? but and, arguing it in court is one thing and a rally is completely something else. That is fair. I'll, I'll take that point. But, you know, on, on the Section 3 case, I, mean, I think the Section 3 case is a much bigger mess, um, you know, I, I, and much less straightforward than the immunity case because... That's, that's the Colorado case and, yep, and the yep, main case, yeah. Yeah, right. So, so you know, you have this provision of in the 14th Amendment that says, hey, listen, if you engage in insurrection, you are mm -hmm. disqualified from holding future office. But it's never really been used against anyone running for president. Um, it really hasn't been used much at all since the early 20th century. And there are all these open questions, not just about what it means to engage in insurrection, but about who's supposed to decide that. Mm -hmm. And so even, you know, I, I mean, I'll confess, I, I'm someone who thinks that President Trump did engage in insurrection in and around January 6th. I don't think this is an open and shut case, and I don't think the court really wanted this case, right? Mm -hmm. Again, until the Colorado Supreme Court came out the other way and sort of forced their hand. And so and I think, how muddy you know, does yeah. that get? How muddy does that get if they're enforcing, you know, a quote unquote, state law, and this is a state yeah. Supreme Court and elections are supposed to be up to the states? How muddy does that get if the Supreme Court comes in and says, we know how to interpret the law of your state better than you do, Supreme Court but, of Colorado? That's why this is a huge mess. And, and you know, I, I think the court is going to probably fall over itself in the section in the Colorado case to not reach the substantive question of whether President Trump engaged in insurrection. Um, huh. Because even if they, you know, even if five of them think he did, um, hmm. a five-four ruling from the Supreme Court is not going to go over well. Um, I'm just going to ask yeah. about a split decision in this one. Do they feel the pressure to to make the number look bigger one way or the other? I think they must. I mean, I, I wrote about this uh, back in December. You know, there there really is. If, if you look at the history of the Supreme Court, there really is this tradition in the highest of the high-profile cases of the justices really pushing for unanimity, or at least to not divide on ideological lines as a way of trying to send a message, you know, to the American people that the court's judgment is not a political one. Um, and so, you know, that includes the, the desegregation cases, which were unanimous on purpose. Um, it includes the Watergate tapes case, where a whole bunch of messy compromises were made behind the scenes to get an eight nothing opinion written by Nixon's hand-picked Chief Justice Warren Burger. Um, and I think the question is, is there anything like that on the table for the court now? Um, and I'm not sure that there is. Well, Steve, if, if the Supreme Court doesn't decide the Colorado case or doesn't decide the insurrection part of the Colorado case, how would they potentially rule on that then? So, you know, there are a couple of off-ramps, Jason, they could take. One is... They could say um, Section three doesn't apply to the president, right? That that the you know the 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 mechanism Section three creates is for lower level officials, but that the president who's elected on a nationwide basis is different. Um, they could do something. They could they could say that Section three is not uh, in legal words self executing, meaning that Congress had to pass or has to pass some kind of implementing legislation to carry it into effect. Um, and indeed, Congress has done that in a couple of places. There are a couple of criminal statutes that carry with it disqualification from holding future office if you're convicted. The insurrection statute is one of them. Um, they could say that this is just not justiciable, that courts have no business, Jason, resolving this issue. It should be up to political officials and Congress. Um, you know, th there none of them are, I think, especially analytically satisfying. 
But I think this is a real trap for the court. And, and again, to go back to where we started, a trap that the court sort of made for itself, mm -hmm. um, right? That that you know, if this court were more popular, if this court had not witnessed such an erosion of public confidence, I think it would have more capital to spend um, mm -hmm. in the Trump cases than it has. And I think part of the trick for the court is walking this tightrope of not further eroding public confidence by handing down yet another ruling that is perceived in deeply ideological terms. Uh, before mm. we move on to the last thing that I want to pick your brain about, I just wanted to say one more thing about these these Trump cases. If immunity was a thing for a president or former president, wasn't Nixon a lawyer? Uh, and, and and okay, so he was a lawyer and he accepted a pardon when he left. He yeah, would have I, needed I, a yes. pardon if I, if. I, I, I mean, this is a this is a very good argument, right? That that it, that that it didn't occur to Richard Nixon is a pretty good is pretty good evidence that this is not a viable argument. Um, the flip side is, I mean, just at, at, at one pushback. Um, on the, I think that work on the immunity question on the Section Three point for everything that Nixon did that was immoral, unlawful, unethical, whatever. He never tried to stage a coup, um, at least not in this country. Right. And so, you know, I, I think I think that that probably so. So at least on the Section three side of this of this line, we really are treading through uncharted territory. Um, so so let's get into this last topic. And, and this is the least sexy of them, Steve, but probably the most far reaching of all the ones we talked about. Uh, and we're talking about boring old regulations and the so-called Chevron deference. Both of those things probably make people just fall asleep. Uh, but right, this turn off could now. touch. <laughs> this could touch every part of our lives, though, couldn't it? And and if this case uh, goes uh, a certain way here, this could be another one of these huge landmark cases where the Supreme Court reverses decades of precedent. Yeah, so, so before the abortion cases and the immigration cases and the Trump cases all sort of came along and fell onto the court— I would have thought, and I had thought, that these were the big cases of the court's term, these administrative law cases. Mm -hmm. And it's it's hard to get people fired up about administrative law. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I say that even as someone who teaches it. Um, <laughs> but but the, the, the real question, I mean, if, if we can break it down for a second, you know, there are, gosh, somewhere over 430 different federal agencies. Um, and they regulate everything from the environment to food to vehicle standards, um, to airports. I mean, like, you know, it, you can't look around your house and not see ways in which the federal government has regulated things to make your lives, maybe not cheaper, but safer, um, better, hopefully, in some respect. And, you know, listen, everyone has agencies they hate and everyone has regulations that they think are inefficient, pointless, whatever. I mean, like, no one thinks the administrative state is, is perfect. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the challenge is that you have these agencies, all of which are exercising power that Congress delegated to them. Mm -hmm. And everyone agrees that it was Congress's power to delegate in the first place. And the problem is what happens when Congress's delegations are not explicit? Um, and so one response is, well, Congress should just be explicit. So there are 430 agencies. Like, how is Congress supposed to be explicit about everything? Like, hey, oh, uh, today is the uh, uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture Day. So today we're going to regulate meat inspection standards. And then tomorrow we're going to uh, regulate pork, uh, uh, poultry, poultry inspection standards. 
And then the day after that, we'll do fish. I mean, like, you know, but with, Congress yeah, is with not... that many agencies, you yeah, wouldn't right. get to all of them in a year. You wouldn't and, get to all of them. That's considering in, you in, do in nothing a, else. Right. You wouldn't get to all of them in a decade um, at, yeah. at that rate. Right. So so the, the, the compromise that the court hashed out about 40 years ago is that Congress still has to delegate. I mean, right. Agencies can't make up their power. But where statutes are ambiguous, right, where either because the term is ambiguous or because Congress has left to the agency, you know, reasonable, like the power to set a reasonable price, for example, or other words that are not ambiguous, but that are clearly meant to be filled in by somebody else. Mm -hmm. Chevron stands for the proposition that as long as the agency interprets that statute reasonably, as long as it's not a, a, a bizarre reading of the statute, the, the agency wins. And so even if I, the judge, might not have adopted that interpretation, I can't displace the agency's interpretation yeah. just because I disagree with it. I have to show that it was actually unreasonable. Um, this sounds very technical, but the result is to give a lot of discretion to agencies to figure out how to implement the delegations Congress has given them. Um, and those agencies yeah. have expertise. Uh, versus going before a judge or before Congress, which might not have expertise on that subject matter. Right. So that's the idea, right? The idea is that you've got scientists making scientific decisions. You've got folks with experience with like food inspections, making food inspection decisions, right? I mean, like you've got, you know, there are obviously, you know, there are imperfections in the system, but the idea is better for those people to be making the decision than a federal right. district judge um, whose only expertise is judging, right? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So Chevron has become a bit of a bete noir among conservatives um, who claim that it's really a mass it, that that it's massively anti-democratic because those experts in those agencies, no one voted for them. That's the basic argument, right? And so you're giving. Well, all if you had a power. judge making the decision, the judge doesn't get voted for either. In a lot of cases, they're appointed, and and this is a Supreme Court deciding this. It's not elected either. Okay, so that's plot hole number one. Um, is that is that yes the the obvious response is but you're not talking about you know the person making the decision if it's not the agency is a judge um, so the response to that is but no it's really Congress's decision to make and the judges are just as there to implement Congress's decision mm. right all right even if you buy that and I don't um, the Supreme Court over the last 15 years has done a lot to make agencies less independent. Um, so that those bureaucrats that are anti-democratic, according to the critics, are actually much more directly accountable to the president today than they were 15 years ago. Just take the, the two cases the Supreme Court heard are about an agency called the National Marine Fisheries Service, which I will confess I had never heard of in these two cases. <laughs> right. Um, it is not part of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. It's something totally different. Um, it's actually part of NOAA. Uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is in the Department of Commerce. These are the things I learned about this case. Um, but <laughs> but the, the, the folks who made the relevant decision here, right, which was to put these inspectors on these small mom and pop fishing boats, none of them are independent, right? They are all, you can draw a straight line from the president to the secretary of commerce, to the administrator of NOAA, to these officials, and none of those officials are protected against being fired at will, hmm. right? And so, you know, in a world in which the justification for getting rid of independence in the executive branch is to improve democratic accountability, kind of weird to turn around and say, oh, Chevron's bad because it's not democratically accountable. Hmm. 
Steve, last yeah, thing I had for you here, I, I think about the Chevron case. I think about presidential immunity. Mifra Pristone, we've talked about the concertina wire. It, it, it seems like, especially with the conservative majority, the law and order crowd is really testing law and order right now. <laughs> well, you know, um, law, law and order are are ambiguous terms, Jason, and we have to we have to just you know who's law and who's order. Um, I, you know, this is why. So, so when I talk about sort of a term where there are a lot of cases that have implications for the structure of government, right? That's why the administrative law cases are so important. I mean, we talked about the Chevron cases. There's another one about how the Consumer Financial Protection Board, uh, Bureau is funded which actually has massive implications for how Congress funds the executive branch. I mean, these disputes don't get the headlines that abortion and affirmative action and religion get. And, you know, you don't have to be a media critic to understand why that's true. Sure. But they have, ram I mean, when it comes to decisions, they're going to have just as big an impact on our everyday lives, right? You know, changing how the federal government's allowed to regulate, changing how Congress is allowed to fund things, right? Changing, um, we've been talking about the five cases about regulating social media companies um, and the First Amendment implications of, for example, Texas, right? Trying to limit content moderation. I mean, these are all sort of not just big cases. They are cases with massive ramifications for how many of us live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis to a degree that just is not true of many of those hot-button social issue cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, Steve, last one for you here. How many more blockbuster cases do you think that this court uh, picks up by the time they get to the end of the term in June? Oh, can I vote for zero <laughs> just out of out of out of hope, out of out of self 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 protection? Um, so so just a, a nerdy point on timing, guys. I mean, I think you know the the court has this. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It has a flow right to its to its calendar, and we really are as as we're sitting here, we really are at the point where it's it's the norm is that any new cases get punted to next year um right and so the you know just yesterday as we're recording this the court took up a big death penalty case out of oklahoma um mm -hmm. that's not going to be argued this term that's going to be argued in the fall indeed part of why i think the court waited to take that case till yesterday was so that it would be in the fall so at this point i don't expect the court to add any new cases other than ones that are really urgent mm -hmm. and you know, that would include the Trump immunity case if it gets there and they want it. At least, guys, where I sit right now, I don't see any other ones. Mm. But if there's any lesson from the court over the last five years, you know, a case that you didn't see coming could end up getting to the court in a big old hurry. So mm. I would put the I, I put the over under at one and a half and bet the under. <laughs> you said, no, don't ever bet against this court. Well, um, so. So that Oklahoma case, though, is yeah. an indicator to you that they're saturated for this term. That they're saturated for this term, um, that they don't want to add cases that they don't have to add to this term. So they'll keep adding cases just as part of their normal flow. Um, mm -hmm. But if it's not a huge case with massive implications, those will be argued in the fall. Um, and that for now, we really have, I think, a pretty good handle on what the docket's going to look like between now and June. Steve Vladek, always appreciate the insight, man. You're you're a uh, you really open the court up to the layperson for us, especially uh, Wheeler. But uh, thanks so much, as as always, here, man. 
You know, would, you are so you're so hard on him. I, all I have to say is, you know, I get, you guys. See, here's what you don't you. know, Steve. No, 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 I, I gotta, no, no. Steve is a, here Steve because... studies the law. It's all balls and strikes, <laughs> and Steve is calling a strike here. Thank you for that, Steve. Do appreciate that. Although, uh, although, know, it's, although I'm not calling pass interference. That's a whole. There you go. There you go. If only you guys knew the truth about Wheeler. Yeah, uh, well, well that'll, that'll be that'll be that for time. another podcast. Exactly. Uh, no, it is interesting though that you bring up Jason though that Steve makes this interesting to the lay person and explains it well because I'm going to give a plug to your now one year old uh, Substack. It's called One First. It's this newsletter that you put out uh, regularly, and you know part of your whole reason for even doing this is to make the Supreme Court more accessible to people, and it really is. It reads easy, like it makes you understand what's before the court, and it's open to anyone. Uh, well, thanks, guys. I, I and you can find it for those of you who 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 want the plug. It's uh, it's stevevladik.substack.com, and, and follow Excellent. Steve on Twitter or on X, whatever you call it these days. Follow him as well if you have you know any concerns, questions about these headlines that are coming out from the court. His his uh, X address or Twitter address is Steve underscore Vladek V L A D E C K. And also, uh, you can read his New York Times bestseller, The Shadow Docket, or you could just uh, pay the tuition and uh, get into college (laughs) and go study uh, law under him at UT Austin. Uh, Before I let you go, Steve, uh, you always bring new terms uh, to our uh, lexicon here. Uh, Did any stand out to you today, Whiteley? No, our lexicon's not very big, Steve. So, okay, well, uh, you know, I, I think we we added certiorari before judgment. Yeah, yes. I, you know I, what? I didn't my, take Latin. No, you know what? My favorite was today that you just don't hear very often is justiciable. 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 Yes. justiciable. I'd like it's to buy a, a vowel on spelling these, though. <laughs> so would my students. I, I, I actually, it's just justiciability is literally the only word I actually take time out of class to make sure that we all know how to pronounce. <laughs> it's a tough Steve, one. We'll, we'll let you run, man. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Great to be with you. Thanks, Steve. Click subscribe and get Yolitics every week. Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas.